Hello, thank you for joining for episode number 136 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we hear from Taner Doğan, author of Communication Strategies in Turkey, Erdogan, the AKP and Political Messaging, which was recently published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury. The book is the product of exhaustive research based on over 100 interviews with government supporters, activists, officials, strategists and pundits attending events and also closely examining President Erdogan's messaging as his rhetoric has shifted from emphasising Ankara's EU membership goal towards a harsh, truculent nationalism in recent years. We talk about that research and its implications in our conversation a bit later on. But before we get started with the interview, let me just remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras, including that exclusive discount deal, which gives Turkey Book Talk members a 30% discount on all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Extensive Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members who use a special code at the checkout that I send out once you sign up. That deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks, including the book that we discuss in this very episode. Turkey Book Talk members also receive transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. And you get transcripts of the entire archive of interviews when you sign up, which includes a number of extra ones not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Taner Doğan. He's written a book about government communication strategies in today's Turkey, so there's probably nowhere better to start than President Erdogan himself, and specifically his speeches. If you watch Turkish TV, Erdogan really is ubiquitous, often delivering multiple speeches in one day, all of which are broadcast live and in full by pretty much all the major news channels. In recent weeks, for example, he's been speaking almost daily at provincial congresses of his ruling party, speaking to congress halls that are jam-packed despite the COVID-19 pandemic, which has raised at least a few eyebrows. So I started by asking Tan Erdogan to talk about the role of Erdogan's speeches in the government's shaping of the news agenda. The attention economy is highly important when we talk about political communication. So how do you attract attention is a critical question. The research results lead us to the conclusion that the AKP's communication brand is Erdogan. His charisma, 
charismatic leadership is playing a critical role. In the case of Turkey, the lack of institutionalization has strengthened the need of a charismatic leader. In this regard, Erdogan's charismatic leadership is playing an important role. His speeches are highly critical, highly important when analyzing his communication because his way of communicating is one-to-one. He likes to be on the ground, unlike Trump, who preferred social media and in particular Twitter. Erdogan, as I said, he likes to be on the ground. This is based on his uprising, actually. When he studied at Imam Hatip School, which is a religious school type in Turkey, he used to make speeches on behalf of the students. He read poems of populist Islamist poets like Necip Fazıl Kısakürek, Sezai Karakoç, or Mehmet Akif Ersoy. So he uses poetry in his speeches, and he's emotionalized in his speeches. In this regard, emotionalization is highly important within the frame of Erdogan's communication. He has an emotional relationship with his supporters. His body language, his gestures, his nonverbal communication is very effective. His intonation, how he uses his voice, how to modulate is decisive when analyzing his overall charisma. But not just his speeches or his huge rallies, uh, which they used to organize before the COVID-19 period. He makes visits to people when he enters their homes, he removes his shoes, he sits on the floor when meeting poor families who have little or no furniture. He kisses the hands of elderly family members out of respect. So all in all, cultural norms and values play a central role in his communication with the society. His common man image is associated with that of a man who is close to the people, who understands them very well because of his demographic background. He is from Istanbul's Kasım Pasha district, which is known for working class community housings. So Erdogan uses this reality regularly when discussing issues related to the country. But this type of communication has actually started when he ran for the office of Istanbul mayorship in 1994. For the first time, an Islamist party, back then it was Nejmetin Erbakan's Milli Gürüş movement, the Refah party, they involved uh, women in the election campaigns, they paid visits to bars and restaurants in secular districts across Istanbul to reach out to people who favored other parties until that time. And what about the importance of rallies? Erdogan often delivers the speeches that we're talking about at these big mass rallies. And these rallies always strike me as a very distinctive aspect of Turkish politics, distinct really from mass politics in many other countries. And they have a very long history, going back decades actually, in Turkey, to long before Erdogan and the AKP came onto the scene. Could you just talk about what role mass rallies play in crafting Erdogan's message and getting that message out there, and also crafting a sense of shared identity among his supporters and a sense of emotional connection, really, between them and him? 
Rallies play an important role in Erdogan's communication. His one-to-one communication is happening on the ground with the people. His messaging, he delivers his messages through huge rallies and events. During these rallies, his messaging is based on collective identity. The way he uses images, the way he uses symbols, the way he uses linguistics in general is highly decisive with regard to his political agenda. He uses poetry during these rallies in order to deliver an emotional message, in order to give the impression that this is not just a party, a political party. It is like a social movement. We are here together with a, with an agenda of collective identity. And this is your religious duty to support us. That's the reason why I call it populist is. Islamism, why I call the AKP as a populist Islamist party. It's not just Islamism as in the case of Nejmetin Arbaka. It's a populist Islamist ideology, which means that Erdogan uses Islam in a discursive and rhetorical way to gain credibility on the ground. Populist jargon of we and them good guys versus bad guys dichotomy is playing an important role in his rallies. Of course, though, all of this is easier to convey to the public when 90% of the media is basically controlled by the government. I wonder if you could just address that issue, you know, how the gradual bringing of the media under the thumb, essentially, of the government has actually made it very easy for the government to shape and control the national conversation. Media is playing an important role in AKP's communication. However, conventional media, TV and newspaper, is a medium to address middle-aged and older adults in Turkey. Online public sphere is playing an important role now in the 21st century. Bearing in mind that 7 million digital natives will vote for the first time in 2023 elections, the online public sphere is playing an important role today. Yes, the conventional media is controlled by pro-government sources. Around 85 to 90 percent is controlled by pro-government sources. But that's not enough because online public sphere, digital communication is more important today. That's the reason why a new social media law was introduced, to control the narrative on social media. Let's talk about that, the implications of the social media law. So this went into effect at the beginning of October last year, and it foresees a gradually stiffening set of punishments for social media companies that don't assign a legal representative in Turkey to respond to content removal requests. And it starts with fines, it's followed by advertising bans, and will end up months down the line, potentially with effective shutdown of these platforms in Turkey. And that final event is something that people here are definitely now considering as a possibility. To talk about that social media law, why was it brought out and how do you see that whole issue developing? 
Digital communication is highly important today to reach out to younger generation, to reach out to digital natives, and also to those who are not following conventional media. In this regard, in the last couple of years, the AKP government became aware that they have to control the narrative on digital platforms. On the other hand, there is the political economic perspective of these platforms, which has to be discussed broadly. We have seen this a couple of days ago after Trump's defeat, Twitter and other social media giants decided to ban him on their platforms. Here we have to ask the question, why? Why this wasn't done earlier, maybe less people would have died. Why after his defeat, Trump's defeat? So this is another discussion. But when this new law restricts freedom of speech, freedom of expression in the country, or when pro-government trolls use it to manip manipulate the truth, or when anti-government messages within the frame of democracy is censored, this would lead to authoritarianism. And what do you think if uh, Twitter and Facebook don't appoint legal representatives? Do you think the government will go the whole hog and basically shut them down here? It's difficult to predict, but I hope that the government does not go so far and start a censorship campaign because young people want to express themselves freely. They want to live in a country where they have a future. And this is all related to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, uh, respect of human rights but also respect of individual rights. And I believe that social media is an individual right to express yourself. So I do hope that this new social media law is not leading to censorship on digital communication platforms. Now, going back to the book, I want to talk about Errol Olchok. He led the AK Party's strategic communications and campaigns for many years. He was hugely influential in stage managing election campaigns, minutely directing everything, centering everything around Erdogan, and really crafting the AK Party's messaging. And you actually personally observed him at work during the presidential campaign in 2014, and you interviewed him at length for the book. And he actually died in 2016 during the coup attempt. And after his death, many in the government said that his loss was very keenly felt in the party's strategizing. I remember seeing some government media people coming out in subsequent election campaigns and saying, you know, this is awful, this is stale, it's unimaginative. We need to find someone like Errol Olchok again. So who was Errol Olchok and why was he important? Errol Olchok was a valuable source for the study because he was with Erdogan for 25 years. He was like Erdogan's spin doctor when it comes to PR, public relations and communication in general. He kind of seemed to me like a pretentious guy, but when I met him, I could see how, hum how humble and modest he was. He was always trying to emphasize that this was not his success story, but Erdogan's. So 
you could see how loyal he was to his leader. He developed slogans. He developed communication strategies for a long period of time. But interestingly, he revealed during our interview that Erdogan asked him to support Anahta's political communication campaign in 2011 in Tunisia. And in 2012, Erdogan requested again to support the Muslim Brotherhood's political communication campaign after the Egyptian coup. So that leads us to emphasize that the AKP is an inspiration to other Islamist parties in the region within the frame of communication and messaging. And these days, of course, we can't talk about communications in Turkey without also talking about Faritin Altun. He is the chair of the Presidential Communications Directorate, and he's been there since 2018. And he's really left his mark, I think it's fair to say. His tenure has been marked by these spectacular ideological videos, among other things. And it really is Erdogan's communications methods on steroids, really, absolutely hammering these uh, historical Islamist, nationalist, right-wing themes. Talk about Fahrettin Altun. What can you tell us about him that we may not already know? He has he has a crucial role in Erdogan administration. He is an academic, but he also wrote for Daily Sabah and Sabah newspapers, which are owned by Turquoise Media. He was uh, managing, leading the Istanbul branch of Seta Think Tank. And he was always on air on A News and Ahaber in particular before he was appointed to the Turkish presidency. It's a strong institution they try to build, the communications directory. I would claim that it's stronger than some ministries. His aim is to create a collective communication system across all state institutions. He's trying to structure government's communication vis-a-vis its image in the international media, as well as the messaging with the Turkish public. You mentioned the videos. To give a couple of examples, during the Olive Branch, Peace Spring, or Euphrates shield operations, the media narrative was studied in advance by the communications directory, and videos along with explainer graphics were released on social media to quote-unquote inform the public. 2020, when they couldn't organize rallies due to restrictions because of COVID-19, they focused on digital communication. So they released in August 2020, they released a video with mainly Islamist, nationalist, cultural and neo-Ottoman images. Uh, You could see fighter aircrafts, drill ships, the Green Dome in Medina to Al-Aqsa, mosque in Jerusalem with an upbeat music and the background and slogans such as God is great. The video emphasized how, quote unquote, Turkey is protecting the oppressed across the world. There were scenes from the Hagia Sophia, which was turned to mosque and Erdogan citing verses from the Quran. 
But interestingly, this video had footages of Alpaslan, who was the second sultan of the Seljuk Empire, Sultan Mehmed II, also known as Sultan Fatih, who conquered Istanbul, Constantinople. But they didn't include footages from Ataturk. So the, the message which are communicated with these videos is collective identity within the frame of populist Islamist ideology. So the communications directory's aim is to deliver Erdogan's message, deliver the government's message to the national and international audience but also make Erdogan an iconic figure and more importantly, a beacon of hope for Muslims worldwide. Another key secondary aspect, I suppose, are TV series, historical TV series that have become very popular in Turkey and overseas in recent years. And they often strike the same ideological notes as the government, playing on the same themes essentially, putting out this conservative religious narrative, framing history through this highly selective ideological worldview, reflecting a newfound obsession with Ottoman and Seljuk history. In fact, a highly instrumentalized version of that history. Obviously, not all these producers and directors are directly connected to the government, but they certainly fit into a certain ideological landscape. What can you tell us about how these historical TV shows chime with the government's political message? Entertainment informs audiences and shapes minds. So historical dramas such as Kurulush Osman, Resurrection Arturul, and Paytaht Abdul Hamid became popular not only in Turkey, but also in the Middle East, in Latin America, in Balkans, and even in Eastern Europe. Along with the rise of Erdogan's image in the Middle East, the role of Turkish production series glorified the image of Turkey, particularly regarding its Islamic identity. Uh, this was kind of nation branding through culture, rhetoric, and broadcasting. On the other hand, these productions were a reflection of the way conservative film producers and directors responded to Western hegemony and the media in particular. I'm speaking here in particular about Hollywood. Plus the 2001 World Trade Center attacks by Al-Qaeda damaged the image of Muslims across the globe. So these drama series try to emphasize how strong Muslims were in the past during the Ottoman and Seljuki Empire and to show in a way how respectful figures, respectful politicians and leaders and sultans they had in order to be proud today and to be optimistic for the future. Maybe there is no direct relationship between directors and government officials, but it's clear that it's kind of a political communication strategy of the government or of the Turkish presidency to use cultural diplomacy through Turkish drama.
So the government of Erdogan has been extremely effective in creating a very clear, legible message that's really understood by the entire population. And it's been enough to consolidate supporters behind Erdogan, a sizable proportion of the population, if not the entire population. And in recent years, we've seen the economy in Turkey really struggling. Uh, and arguably, the same kind of economy would have brought down any other normal government. But a considerable portion of the population is still behind Erdogan and the AKP is still, according to polls, Turkey's most popular party. So really, it's just a question here about effectiveness, I suppose. Do you think, just uh, speculating here, if the ruling authorities did not have such tight authoritative methods of communication, really dominance of the narrative and control of the media effectively, do you think that perhaps the poor state of the economy would have already brought down the government? I do believe that the communication is very crucial because the way messaging is framed with cultural, religious, and historic images, uh, imagery, it's leading to the conclusion that this party, this social movement, is the only solution in Turkey. And bearing in mind that you are talking to conservative majority and you need their support. This messaging is playing an important role. It's used within the frame of populist Islamism and nationalism, obviously. So collective identity here is important. And finally, the last chapter of the book talks about post-Erdogan Turkey. So Erdogan was always dominant, but the AK Party has really become a one-man show. It's very hard to imagine a scenario with Erdogan not on the scene, with Erdogan not at the wheel. But indulge me in a bit of speculation here. What happens if he was ever to leave office or uh, potentially retire or something else one day? Is this communication structure that we've been talking about the kind of thing that has deep roots? Is it something that another charismatic leader can simply pick up and run with? The institutionalization in Turkey right now is based on Erdogan. Uh, so basically, Erdogan is the institutionalization. And that's a huge problem for post-Erdogan period. I don't think that it's it will be easy in that period to follow the same communication and the same messaging using the same notions, etc., This is useful when it's applied by Erdogan for the majority of the conservative people. But there is a reality that the dynamics in Turkey has changed in the last two decades. The AKP has changed the sociological sphere in the country and enabled religious conservatives to rebuild their self-confidence after the postmodern coup in 1997. Uh, the perception of this social class uh, will hence be a crucial dynamic to be considered, even if the AKP is not in power in the coming decades or years. We could see this during the 2019 local elections. Istanbul Mayor Ekrem Imamoglu has visited mosques, he prayed with the community, he recited from the Quran, he represented a humble, young and charismatic image and respected the feelings of the middle class religious conservatives. 
he's rebuilding Ottoman water fountains as part of urban culture. He's tweeting Erdogan's favorite poet, Sezai Karakoc. These are just a few strategies adopted from Erdogan's communication. So I believe that the whole dynamic has changed after Erdogan's leadership and AKP's communication style. And this will be relevant in post-Erdogan period. That was Taner Doan. Many thanks to him for joining for this episode number 136. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, including, incidentally, the book that's the subject of this episode. You also get transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Arriving in your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the link to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Bütün dünyayı